Hey, .NET Rocks fans. Richard and I are going to be at the Dev Intersection Conference at the Marriott Grand Lakes in Orlando, Florida, April 13th through 16th. Come see your favorite speakers, Scott Guthrie, Scott Hanselman, John Papa, Billy Hollis, Brian Noyes, Dan Wallin, Todd Anglin, Tim Huckabee, Michelle Bustamante, Miguel Castro, Duval Lowy, Kathleen Dollard, and many more. Go to devintersection.com to register now. You'll save 200 bucks if you register on or before February 24th, $100 if you register between February 25th and March 31st, and you can save an additional 50 bucks by specifying .NET Rocks is how you heard about the conference. More details at devintersection.com. We'll see you in April. .NET Rocks episode 955 with guest Neil Danson. Recorded live Tuesday, February 18th, 2014. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. Online at telerik.com. And by Franklin's.net, makers of Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl and Richard, it's snowing again in New really? England. It's just rain here, man, but it's cold. We are, uh, I don't know, man, a lot of snow this winter. Yeah, too no much. kidding. Too much. That's all I'm going to say, because I'm not a complainer. No, you're losing your sense of humor about this, though. <laughs> yeah, and I have done a video called, uh, to the official music video to my song, Waiting for the Summer to Come, which we're going to be performing at South by Southwest. Actually, I can't say it's at South by Southwest. It's during South by Southwest, but it's right. officially at the Red Gorilla Music Festival, which is on 6th Street in Austin. Nice. Yeah. So if you want to see the video and hear more and read all about that, go to carlfranklin.com. That's all I'm going to say. Roll the music. All right, buddy. What do you got? I've got neural networks on the brain lately. You do. I did some work with neural networks in VB back okay. in the day. Back in the day. And it was all just with sample data. I never really included, you know, pulling in live data feeds and all that stuff. But this is really intriguing to me lately. Uh, and of course, now we have cloud and we have lots of public data sources and man, it, it just the possibilities seem endless. And um, and also, you know, if you are a guy like me who's intrigued by this stuff, you will probably find yourself soon over your head. So, <laughs> so I'm looking forward to being over my head. But I did find a library in .NET that seems to be well-received. At least the three people that downloaded it on SourceForge think so. Nice. It's Neuron.net. So if you go to tinyurl.com slash Neuron.net, this is a, a .NET library, Neural Network Engine, written in C Sharp. It provides an interface for advanced AI programmers to design various types of artificial neural networks and use them. And uh, there you go. So, is the word artificial necessary there? I don't know. Could it be? Could it be an organic neural network you can make in C sharp? I'm thinking no. Yeah, I don't know. And and again, I haven't downloaded this. I don't know how good it is, but there are three downloads and three five star reviews. So oh, I can't argue with that. So and it's it's uh, from only last year, so yeah, relatively a, fresh. Last year, relatively fresh. There's another one in Code Project as well. Interestingly enough, it's relative to our guest today because I did, I was thinking neural networks, F sharp might be, you know, functional language might be 
much better for programming a neural network. And maybe we can talk to uh, Neil about that. But I, I couldn't find anything in F-sharp for neural networks. And I just did a, a quick bang Google search, and I couldn't find anything, at least you know in the first couple of pages. I bet if I scoured, I could find something. So there you go. Uh, neuron.net. Know it, learn it, love it. Who's talking to us, Richard? Awesome. I grabbed a comment. Of course, I have to grab an F-sharp comment if we're going to talk about F-sharp. So I grabbed one off of 813. That is a show we did with Mr. Syme and uh, Keith Batachi, which is a while ago. That's the uh, the 2012 road trip, right? Yeah, in Cambridge, Mass. In Cambridge, Mass. And this comment comes from Peter Newhook, who said, I almost fell out of my chair when Don mentioned the R-type provider. Yeah. R is quite simply the lingua franca of statistics, but anyone that's given the language more than a cursory glance knows it's weird. (laughs) (laughs) I almost did a spit take there. I was taking a cup of coffee, almost choked, man. (laughs) It's weird. (laughs) All right. All right, let us continue. Yeah. There's a staggering number of packages available, but it's so different from, quote, normal languages that having experience in a traditional CLR or JVM language is almost a hindrance. (laughs) The idea of interoperating between .NET and R in a strongly typed way is deeply exciting. (laughs) And I'm with you, Peter. R is one of those things that's been on my radar for a while as something to talk about in the context of, of you know, just knowing that there's other ways to develop and other ways to think. You know, I think we're having enough fun just thinking functionally, but the R approach is even stranger. It's, it's, it is somewhat functional. It's very set oriented. It's really, it's really curious uh, way of thinking. And so I could see how F sharp and R could probably get along. And that's what Don was talking about. We did this show was that, yeah, you can actually have a type provider to an R structure. So you can actually pull that data to do an analytics with it, which is right. very exciting. Uh, so thank you for your comment, Peter. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for Windows Phone 7 and 8, Windows 8, iOS, and Android. And those apps were built by Diatom Enterprises. Who'd love to build you an app? Just go to DiatomEnterprises.com. And before we go any further, I need to remind you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have hundreds of hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts, and they're still releasing over 40 new courses every month and offering a free 10-day trial, giving you 200 minutes of access. Pluralsight offers a wide range of topics, including iOS, Java, Android, web development, pretty much anything you can think of on the Microsoft stack, including courses on F-sharp. So please try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And that brings us to our guest, Neil Danson. He's a senior software developer and team lead at Trayport on the Jewel trading screen. He has over 10 years development experience with .NET, including C-sharp and F-sharp. After a break in the software industry, writing software for the military, followed by a stint in BBC News, Neil now spends his working life writing user interfaces for energy trading and WPF. In his spare time, Neil has spoken at the London F-sharp user group, and participates in game jams using F-Sharp and Monogame. You can find Neil occasionally blogging at neildanson.wordpress.com or ranting furiously at Neil Danson on Twitter. Welcome, Neil. How are you? I'm, I'm doing great today. How are you guys doing? Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, uh, uh, F-Sharp, 
Yeah. So uh, did you hear what I said about neural networks and does F-sharp lend itself nicely to, to a neural network? Well, I, well funnily enough, I, a few years ago, one of the first things that I tried to do when I was first getting into F-sharp was I, or I had a book lying around called uh, Neural Networks in .NET. I think it's written by a guy called Jeff Heaton. And uh, I remember trying to, to take some of the code and the examples in that and, and use it in F-sharp. And Writing neural networks as your first thing in F-sharp probably isn't the thing that you want to start off with. It's it's not an easy thing to get your head around. But, I mean, there's lots of features that are in F-sharp that are really well suited to, to neural networks. So um, just in the built into the language, you've got lots of things, um, you know, like obviously recursion is a big part of neural networks. And there's lots of additional things like there's uh, matrix libraries and math.net that play really, really well with, with F-sharp that are ideally suited right. for, for neural networks. So... It's not something where I've spent a long time doing it because, you know, it's quite an intimidating thing once you fail massively at writing, writing a neural network uh, to go back and try it again later. But uh, it is definitely possible. I know that, uh, that there are lots of people that have been doing some stuff in that area with F-sharp. Yeah, it didn't say it sounded easy. but it sounded, <laughs> <laughs> In fact, it's, it is pretty hairy, but uh, I'm sure... Uh, could be a lot more. You could write a lot more powerful of a program in F sharp. Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, just because of the functional nature. Certainly, you could you could keep it nice and terse once you'd figured out what it is that you actually need to do to write a neural network. I think that's the hard point to actually get across to yeah. anyone is that is that you know the the Terminator movies make it sound really easy. There's a chip in some guy's head, and that's it, and and that's all there is to a neural network. But when you actually get down to it, there's some some fair, fairly hairy stuff in there, and uh, and getting your head around it all on a first pass can be pretty tricky. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Well, I'm almost uh, resistant to the concept of neural networks because it's almost like artificial intelligence. It's kind of this general term. I, I mean, it depends on what you're trying to do. I, I dig the idea, and a lot of what you're talking about, Carl, I think it comes down to this idea of machine learning, that I want well, the machine to find relationships between data. Pattern recognition, really, in data, which is really what what uh, they've been used for mostly in industry anyway. You know, things like predicting stock prices and predicting, uh, you know, the way trends are going to go in, in, in pricing in particular, you know, or horse racing. Yeah, I mean, it, I, mean I know that there's a lot of stuff that went on at, at Microsoft Research um, a few years ago. They, they did the, the matching for Halo 3, and I know a lot of the part of that was written in F-sharp. And uh, I know they had great success with it, but I don't think a lot of it was based on, uh, on you know, the traditional neural networks, and it was more on the sort of machine learning side, you know, the more targeted algorithms than just to throw something in a network and, and run it a million times and see what comes out the other end. Right, right. And we could almost do a whole show. Actually, I've been asked to do a geek out on artificial intelligence, another one of those loaded terms. Right, sure. But I think the biggest battle I've ever run into dealing with neural nets is the, you use a bunch of data to train it, and it'll do that data particularly well. Then you throw a whole other set of data at it. It doesn't do near as well. Right. Yeah, I mean, overfitting's a big problem for, for neural networks. So, like I say, I, I've only failed at writing one, so I never, I never even hit that problem. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I guess, you know, the, the trick would be to be constantly feed it and to constantly train it. And for that, you need a lot of uh, power, you know, so, yeah, and, you know, so I'm, I was thinking Hadoop and F sharp and, you know, and a lot of data in and a lot of constant retraining. Yeah, I mean, it, it is it's quite often it's, it's getting a, a data set big enough that's representative enough of the thing that you're trying to solve, I guess, is, is one of the big problems right. that you've got to tackle before you even get to actually writing a, a line of code. Well, in two data sets, because I need one to train on and one to test with. And, and the more times you test, the more you're going to bias your results 
so that eventually you use up your test set, it's also now got fitting problems. Interesting. Yeah, we need to do a geek out on this with somebody who really knows neural networks. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. And I, I did a quick search on F-sharp neural net and ended up on the F-sharp org site. And there's a whole section on machine learning, including a paper called F-sharp neural networks with the R provider. Huh? Interesting. So, you know, full tie back into <laughs> everything we've talked about so far, you know, <laughs> there it is. Okay. So, what uh, if we're not doing neural net work, uh, you know, prediction stuff with, uh, with F-sharp, what do we do with big data? What are people doing with big data in F-sharp? Well, well I mean, the, there's this kind of movement against calling it even big data anymore. I think it's just, it's just data now, isn't it? No. Just data, because all data is big, <laughs> you know, we, yeah. We've, we've kind of, a little data? Well, we've, kind of, we've kind of moved past a lot of it being a, a massive problem. So there's, I mean, certainly F-sharp provides a, a, whole, a whole host of handling these things. So, you know, it'd be sort of a missed opportunity to not talk about, you know, some of the things that are happening with type providers in, in F-sharp. And I know Don, Don's talked about these things before. But, oh, yeah. but you know, that, that notion that, you know, you can connect to something like Freebase, a, a, a massive online database, and, you know, within a couple of lines of code, you, you hit that, that magical dot operator and suddenly you just get Freebase in Visual Studio. And, wow. And that's just a, a really powerful thing. And, and with something like Freebase, if you, I mean, if you look at the scale of that thing, you can't code gen it. You, you know, you, you'd start today and you'd, you'd finish, you know, at some point hugely in the future. It's just building all the types, building all the metadata for that. It, all right. So let's back up a little bit. Freebase.com is what we're talking about uh, here? I think it's free, freebase.com or freebase.org. I'm, I'm not sure. Is that. this a community curated database of well-known people, places, and things? That's the one, yeah, I think. Music, books, media, people, film, TV, location, businesses, fictional universes, organization, <laughs> biology, sports, awards, education, government, soccer, architecture, medicine. It goes on and on and on. And those are by, uh, by topics and facts. Yeah, that's right. Descending. Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of like a... Wow. It's, you know, it's a huge, it's a huge, huge data set. You know, so <laughs> I'm not sure it's suitable for, for machine learning, but uh, the, there's a vast amount of data in there. So, if you want to search for you know, albums of things or, or find out which artist did something. It's really easy to consume that stuff in F-sharp using type provider because you no longer have to worry about that, that thing of, you know, is my query string right? Is have I, have I formatted my JSON correctly? Because the type provider is just going to take care of all that stuff and make the, actually solving the problem, the thing that you actually end up doing. That is pretty awesome. Wow. Yeah. And so the, the, you know, I haven't actually worked on this project. You know, I've, I've used it and, and played with it and just gone, that's insanely cool. Uh, but, you know, the way that it works is it generates the types on the fly. Um, so you don't hit that problem of, you know, there's 100 million types and you have to code gen those types as you might do if you were using a language like C Sharp. You know, you, with C Sharp, you, you know, you point something at a database or things like that and you normally get like a hidden code behind file. You, you're not getting any of that hidden mm. code with a type provider, it's actually generating the types on the fly for consumption at runtime, which is, yeah. which again, on that scale is, is just, as, I don't think there's another way to do it at the moment without, you know, losing hair. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, this, you know, in some ways this is like Wikipedia, except organized for querying. Right. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, and that's one example. I mean, there's also things like world bank data that you can access through type providers and, and, you know, a, a single data source is, is interesting in itself, but 
it becomes really exciting when you can take data from, you know, Freebase and then in a, in a single query match that up with data and say World Bank and produce some really interesting, you know, numbers and statistics and things that you can then fire out into a, a chart or, or, you know, anything that you can think of at a table and actually then start actually looking at the data and analyzing in ways that, you again, the plumbing in the past might have just been, you know, too intimidating so to try it. You're sort of doing what I'm thinking, what I was thinking of doing with neural networks, which is trying to find correlations in things that you might not know exist. Yeah. Which is, you know, just take a bunch of data, throw it in, uh, throw in a database and, and have something go look for patterns to see if, you know, uh, a, a rise or a fall in one uh, pattern matches another rise and fall in another pattern. Well, I mean, there's, there's um, certainly libraries for doing that as well. I mean, there's, again, you know, full disclaimer, I haven't actually used this library, but there's something that... Uh, Thomas Petrachek's been heavily involved with called Deedle, which is um, around data science. Right. And, you know, some of the demos that he's been doing around sort of correlating data between, you know, um, you know the, the debt in the U.S. against the, the president at the time and things like that, and taking that information from disparate sources, you know, you get some really interesting results. Now, of course, unlike the machine learning style where, you know, you kind of feed it everything and, and hope for some correlation, I think there's a little bit more, you have a hunch, and this really gives you a, a way to explore that hunch in a quick and easy way rather than, you know, you just plumb all the data through and, you know, get an answer tomorrow. So, Deedle, don't go to Deedle.net, by the way. Oh. <laughs> you know, I mean, you can. It's very cute, but it's not what you think it is. Uh, Deedle is an easy uh, exploratory data library for .NET, um, an easy-to-use library for data and time series manipulation and for scientific programming. It supports working with structured data frames, ordered and unordered data, as well as time series. Deedle is designed to work well for exploratory programming using F-sharp and C-sharp interactive consoles, but can also be used uh, in efficient compiled .NET code. And it looks like um, looks like there's an R-type provider as well. There, there's, well, there's an R-type provider. I mean, there's actually, you know, you know I was listening to the, to the Python uh, talk that you guys had uh, recently, and, uh, and there's even a Python-type provider, which allows you to you know, reference uh, Python code in F-sharp and, and access that as, as if it was a native mm. part of the F-sharp language. So again, you get that sort of nice dot completion in Visual Studio. You start to get things like the IntelliSense, and you can make calls into a completely different language that isn't even running on .NET. I think it uses the C Python impl implementation as opposed to Iron Python. Wow. So, you know, it, it, it really becomes a central point. I mean, it, you know, going back to that machine learning, there's, this, there's a great book called Machine Learning in Action, um, which all the examples for that are written in Python. Well, if, if you wanted to consume that from F-sharp, then you could, of course, take a bunch of those code samples and then whack them into F-sharp using the, the Python-type provider, and, and there you go, you've got it in F-sharp. <laughs> Jeez. Wow. My when, mind yeah, is blown. Yeah, the way you're describing this makes me almost feel like F-sharp is this bridge between these disparate systems and, and languages and data types. We could actually pull everything together from. Yeah, that. it's kind of like a gateway drug. It'll it'll get nice. <laughs> it's gonna get <laughs> it's gonna get you onto harder things. I think like like R, which is just weird. <laughs> weird, <laughs> very weird. Yeah. Well, it just it, you know we don't you think of I think of F sharp as a a language good at doing difficult computational problems and organizing data, that sort of thing. It's a, it's a, it's something without a UI, right? It's something I call into. 
I don't ever think of it as a hub. Well, I mean, the, I mean, there's, that's obviously one way of looking at it. I mean, there's, there's again, type providers are just these magical things that are just changing F sharp now. On you know, there's a new one every week mm. or a new one every day. It's becoming almost like JavaScript libraries. So you can do anything that you can do in C sharp in F sharp. Obviously, it's it's all IL right. when it comes down to it. Right. But there, are, yeah. But there's some really nice things that that, that you can do that are sort of native. So, for example, we use on the dual product that we have at Trayport, it's an entirely WPF-based project. And, you know, a vast majority of that is written using XAML and C-sharp in a very traditional, you know, MVVM, you know, some data bindings and so on and so forth kind of way. But we've got, we've got some parts that we tackled in the past and they were just really, really tricky to do from a performance perspective. You know, the, the volume of data that we were dealing with and the speed that we were dealing with it, we were never really able to, to make it work in a way that anyone could really understand, you know, they end up with these horrible little hacks in there and things like that. And one of the things that we that we were able to do with F Sharp is because at the time we were able to strip right back and go just straight into the code. We were able to build, you know, like little a little micro DSL that really allowed us to focus in on what the problem that we were trying to solve was. And the, the GUI just became part of that DSL. So, you know, adding things and removing things from the screen really just became part of that computation. And I think it's a really powerful thing that, you know, F-sharp really is everywhere. It, you know, you can use it for, for GUIs. Um, you know, we use it in, in the stuff that we do every day on GUIs. But, and then on top of that, in a slightly less scary way in terms of, you know, because that's writing everything. That's the equivalent of having a completely no XAML file and just going in and writing all of the positions of everything on screen and ma manipulating it all in code, which is kind of scary to a lot of people. So the, so right. the other thing that, you, that there is now in F-sharp is... This is a, a XAML type provider. And so what that allows you to do is... XAML type as, Yeah, so a XAML type provider. So what that then allows you to do is um, you create an instance of your XAML type provider and you point it at a XAML file. And, you know, just like the C-sharp version, then when you hit the dot on the class that you've, you know, the, on the object that you've just created, you start to get the, you know, the names that you've got in that XAML file. You start to get the you know, that, that full richness that you get in the C-sharp land. The difference is that, unlike the C-sharp version, there's no code behind, so there's no automatically generated code. Um, mm. You can do all this stuff in, in the F-sharp interactive layer, so that means that you don't even have to have a compile step at this point. You can actually go ahead and start making interactive changes to a window on screen without having to hit F5 and do a build, build step. So you can actually really start to iteratively build up user interfaces, and then once you're happy with it, then you can obviously start to commit that back to the main code. So it's a really different way of working with XAML, but it's in, it, it's almost as slick as the C-sharp experience now. You know, a couple of months ago, you know, if you were to say, write, a, you know, a first-class UI in F-sharp, you'd, you'd be working hard on it, but now it's become a lot easier with things like that XAML-type provider. And, of course, when you want to, wow, when you want yeah. to get to the metal and when you want to get to the performance, then you can, you can skip past that and you can go straight to the you know, manipulation of objects on screen and position them manually and all that stuff that, that really gets yeah, you to sure. the next level in terms of, you know, responsiveness and performance that, you know, everyone really wants from a UI. Well, with the type provider it makes me start thinking in terms of recursive algorithms for drawing complex geometry directly into WPF. Like, let's think 3D and F-sharp. Yeah, so I mean... Is it going to, is it going to dock you for performance in that case? Well... I mean, 3D and WPF isn't a great combo anyway. I mean, it was one of those things. It's not that, a great idea. Anyway, it, yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it looked nice on paper six, seven years ago. Uh, mm, uh, right. I think that 
you know, I, I can't count on one hand how many apps actually really use 3D in them. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, it's again, it's, it's probably not going to be a big help for you in terms of getting raw performance that way because the underlying mechanism isn't that fast in WPF. But what it is going to get you is it's going to get you a really nice, simple model for actually being able to do things like build up geometries and things like that because you've got these nice things in F-sharp, um, a little bit like Python, called um, list comprehensions. So what that allows you to do is essentially, um, if you can imagine in C-sharp, if you were able to have an array, but rather than going up front, here's an array, and then afterwards doing a for loop and populating the array, you can actually put that just in, in square brackets and have all the code that will just populate right. that for you. And that becomes really, really useful for doing things like um, you know geometry and calculated geometry. So building a sphere is, is fairly trivial just because you know there's an algorithm for it and then you just pop it in and it re returns you a list of points. So some of that stuff becomes really easy, but obviously WPF's not not a great help. You've got things like XNA and Monogame that are, that are fairly nice on the .NET world, though. Right. Yeah, if you really want game performance, I'm I'm always thinking about Tim Huckabee type projects where they're doing rendering of three dimensional objects like a heart or or something like that, where being able to express modifications to that quickly would be powerful. Yeah. But and I always presume F sharp's really good at those kinds of recursive algorithms. How well they could express it out to WPF is another issue. Well the problem I guess is getting getting access to those WPF graphics objects is no not the issue. It's the performance of actually setting those values and and you know WPF's performance in general that's the problem. That's right. I mean w WPF I mean it's you can tease good performance out of it if you know what you're doing. Um, and quite a lot of the time, it's not using the default things that, it, that WPF gives you. There are some nice 3D libraries that uh, that you can use in WPF, but they totally bypass XAML. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things where it, it was a nice idea on paper. I'm not sure it's, it's played out. I mean, the general WPF performance thing works fairly nicely most of the time, but th there's always that feeling, I think, of, of not something not being quite there sometimes when you, when you use the defaults. And I think that that quite often it comes down to the defaults um, when you're using languages. So when you're using XAML, the defaults are to have data templates and have stylings and things like that. And there is a cost associated with that. And, you know, using a language like F-sharp where you don't necessarily get that direct access into the tooling in that way actually allows you to build some really, really nice slick user interfaces that are a lot faster than you might get in other languages just because you don't have that nice sort of buffering layer of, a nice, you know, tool set in front of you. Yep, I hear you. Hey, Richard, you know what time it is? Must be that happy time again. That's right. It's time to reach up into the XAML tree and pull off an F-sharp joke. Nice. I uh, got nothing. There you go. <laughs> if he, but you could recurse your way into a complete F-sharp joke. I might joke. be able to recurse my way into the corner if I keep talking. There you go. About the fact that I have no joke. Anyway, no, it's time to give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I tell you who the winner is, Telerik wants you to know, mobile apps are dead. What? That's right. Watch as Telerik unveils what comes next. Are you stuck with tools and vendors that make you choose between native, hybrid, or web-based approaches? You no longer have to choose. Mobile apps are dead, and there's a new way forward. The new wave is all about building long-lasting and compelling cross-platform and multi-device apps that will forever transform mobile development for the better. Are you ready? Go to mobileappsaredead.com, where you will learn how to pick the right approach for each project, tackle the fragmented and dynamic mobile ecosystem, 
to elevate your productivity and shorten time to market and create compelling experiences across platforms and devices. Go to mobileappsordead.com to watch the free online keynote from Telerik. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Derek Mayberry. Derek just won a $2,000 valued Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection, just about everything they do in one box. We give away one on every show, and every December we give away uh, $5,000 worth of technology. If you don't know what we're talking about, it's the fan club. Go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join up. We have thousands of members all over the world. We like to ask our guest, Neil, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology, what would you buy? Right now. So, so I asked my wife what, what she would buy with technology because, uh, you know, I'm a good-loving uh, husband. And, uh, and, she, and, and she said she wanted a car. And, I, and so oh. I told her she can't have a car because that doesn't count. So I had to, I had right, to immediately right. discount what she said. So then the second thing that came into my mind was this thing that I saw a, a few years ago at the BBC. I think it was, um, it was a, like they were doing a joint venture with uh, some Japanese company, and it was they were demoing it in, internally. It was a 33 megapixel TV that was 100 foot wide, and and wow. they assured us that we'd all have one by 2020. So, I'd like to bank the money, please, and I'll I'll collect that in a few years if that's okay. <laughs> wow, that is a really high resolution it, TV. It Jeez. was absolutely incredible to watch. It was it was it was so clear that it wasn't 3D. You know, it was it was before 3D was really sort of taking off. But it looked 3D. It, you know. Did you say a hundred inches or a hundred feet? A, it was a hundred feet. The screen that we saw this on, and, and they were assuring us that this was going to be fairly mainstream. It was. I think there was also 22.2 surround sound as well. So, so <laughs> now, so it was now, fairly insane. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. Well, and I and I there. I was looking for some some 33 megapixel uh, images and. Uh, there is a TV that's being tested by the NHK, which is Japanese, of yeah, course. Yeah, I think it was, I was that's an eighty-five inch. That's seven six. That's seventy-six eighty by forty-three twenty. So you know how four K is actually four HD TVs. Yeah. This would be sixteen HD TVs in one screen. Yeah, it was pretty. It was it wow. was it was phenomenal to look at. And they they were looking at they were talking about some of the the video compression technologies that they were that they were thinking of using. And one of them was a an open source uh, codec called Dirac, which I don't know if you've seen hmm. Dirac. It seems to it seems hmm. to have died a little bit since then. But it was a that one was really designed for this sort of super high resolution uh, video you know compression and. Uh, it looked incredible. <laughs> yeah, but if it's, if you compress the crap out of it, how good can it look? Like it's sort of you hit a point where you're like, all right, guys, if you're going to do this 8K screen thing, you got to have an 8K camera too, mm. and then you got to move that data. That is just a lot, a lot of data. Yeah, I mean, I know that the way that the, the Direct system works is actually it it, dig, it was based on wavelets, so it actually degraded differently than how we're used to with things like H.264. So instead of getting blocky, the image would just get ever so slightly softer for a, you know a fraction of a second. Interesting, but you know the I mean the 8K technology is at the point where nobody's even talking about price. Like it's it's so expensive. Mm-hmm. It's just. It's, but that's awesome. Like, I think you're going to burn your 5K. I guarantee you, it's you think, gone. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> well, I'll, 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 just, I'll just hold on until it's enough. <laughs> I'll see you guys in 30 years. <laughs> right. 
Well, we, and we have had a bunch of conversations about when to buy a 4K screen. And I'm still holding on, I, uh, off another year. I feel like 4K technology is at a point right now where if you buy, you will be unhappy with it in the next year. Yeah, definitely. But I was I was one of those early adopters of 720p screens. And, and yeah, it took like 12 months before nothing worked on it anymore because the, the HDMI specs were still being worked out when, it, when I got it. Yeah. All that kind of stuff. And we're seeing that now a little bit. I think there's like a, a sub $1,000 4K monitor from Dell. But I think it only operates yeah. at about 30 hertz or something. So, you know, it, there's a, it's a bit of a trade-off there as well. It's fine if you want to watch video, but I think for, for most other things, you're probably going to regret that purchase in a few months. Maybe. I think the battle right now is you got to wait for HDMI 2 to be settled and and start being built. Yeah, I mean... Like, that, that is the linchpin to all of this, is 1.3 and 1.4 fine, but 2 is the one... And we got to wait until it's done. Well, that, and, and of course, there's always that that imminent talk of like the wireless HDMI because I know my wife would love that one. You know, if, if I could get rid of the wires, I actually, <laughs> I actually have a wireless HDMI uh, broadcaster and receiver, and they work pretty okay. well. Yeah, they're out there. It can be done. It can be done. Although if you if you're going from an original stereo where you have like component video with three plugs and then you know your surround sounds four plugs so forth, an HDMI cable is a hell of an improvement. Sure is. To yeah. just go to one cable per device is pretty nice. Yep. But yeah, hard to argue with wireless if we can really make it work. I'll uh, post a link to the ones that I have. They work great. I use them in the studio. And uh, they they work within a, a I don't know fifty seventy five foot range and no static no nothing great really well hey before the break I was going to ask you about your the, this functional solid principle that you've been talking about lately what is what is that all about yeah so I mean it, it, it's kind of this idea that I've been that I've been boring people with a little bit um, <laughs> which is you know. It, in the, in, now, this is Bob Martin's solid you're talking about, yeah, right? This yeah, is, so this is the single responsibility, open, close, list of substitution, all that, all that stuff. And, and, right. and it's one of those things that you kind of have in the object-oriented world, and it's, it's generally agreed that it's a, that it's a good thing to, to, to have and know about, even if you don't always follow it religiously. And so I was thinking about this from the, from like the, the more functional side, because there isn't really a an equivalent of solid in functional programming languages. So I, I kind of tried to nail it down and tried to, to work out why that might be. And, and the thing that I've really kind of come up with is that it's all about the defaults. And so, so yeah. part of the reason that solid exists in object oriented world is because it, it's, you know, you have this system where the defaults don't necessarily work for a lot of the cases that you want to use them for, you know? So for example, if you're defining a class, there's nothing about a class which inherently makes you write it as a with a single responsibility. You know, you, right. I can go in, and in fact, you know, if you go into almost any framework, you're going to see classes that have got you know dozens of responsibilities, and you know, it's, that's just the world that we've kind of ended up getting getting into. But then, if you kind of take that single responsibility idea and you translate that into functional programming, what happens is that you go, okay, well. In object-oriented languages, the default thing is to, to write a class for everything. In a functional language, the default thing is to write a function. And so a function in, uh, you know, in its purest sense can only do one thing. It takes you know, you know, some inputs and it returns a single value. And right. because it's a function and because if you write F-sharp in a, in a purest way, in that you have no side effect, 
by its definition, it can only do one thing. So you have single responsibility functions. And just to be clear, you could screw this up. See, your return could be a block of XML with a whole bunch of crap stuffed in it. Like if you want to do something awful, it's not going to stop. So you. it's not going to stop you, but it's all about the defaults. So by def- so if yes. you follow the defaults of, of F sharp, you're not going to have things like mutation. So you're not going to be changing state midway through a function call, which is going to affect something else. Yes. You're going to make a call and you can call that a hundred times on a hundred threads and get the same answer. Right. You'll fall into the pit of so you success. You fall straight into that pit of success. And, and as you start to look at some of the other rules, I mean, it, I'll, I'll kind of group them together because it, it, it might take a while to go through them individually. But, you know, you look at things like open, close, or dependency inversion. And what those boil down to are, you know, in an object-oriented world, it might be that it's going to be, you know, for open, close, it's something like the visitor pattern. And so you have an interface that you pass into something. Or for dependency inversion, it's going to be, you know, you're passing interfaces into things. And so, again, in a functional world, what we do all the time is we treat is we treat functions as as values and we pass those into things all the time. So dependency inversion is just higher order functions. So you know, just mm, like right. you have in link or things like that. But again, the default thing in the language as opposed to something that you kind of have to opt into with, you know, writing interfaces and then knowing to pass them in rather than writing an implementation in your class. So it's really about nailing down those defaults and then getting you into the correct place in in functional programming. And that's that's kind of, I think, why, you know, and, and I've heard this so many times on, you know, in interviews and on, on articles and things like that, that, you know, in languages like F-sharp and, and, and in my own experience in F-sharp, is that quite often, if it compiles, it works. And that's because, you know, you, you have to fight. You Even- have to fight to do it wrong. You have to stick in these weird little arrow operators, and then you kind of go, that, that's... I know that's going to bite me later. That's mutable state. That's going to. I'm going to have to stick a lock around that if I'm going to, you know, do that on multiple threads, or I'm changing some state somewhere else. I'm going to, you know, you and you get these really sort of these warning flags right in front of you, as opposed to if you just follow the defaults, if you just do the default thing that that you should be doing, you know, as you said so so well, you fall into that pit of success really easily. That's a that's an old cliche we hear time and time again. Well, you know, and then there's the problem where it compiles, but we don't know why. Yeah, I mean, I, I, th- that's one of those things where I've, I've only hit that a couple of times. Um, I think that the, the problem that I've, that I've had, particularly more in the past of F-sharp, is when it was a, certainly a newer language on the framework, where the tooling wasn't so good. You'd, you'd find things where it was going to tell you it wasn't going to compile in the IDE, but actually if you hit build, it would compile, and you'd... you'd you know, you'd spend hours just in the ID look at, looking at that red squiggly underline, just trying to figure out why it was there. And it turns right. out it was just that the that the ID was a bit behind. But you know, that was four years ago now, and in 2013, the tooling the tooling support is is phenomenal in in Visual Studio for FSharp, and even in Xamarin Studio, there's some there's some great features in Xamarin Studio that that aren't even in Visual Studio yet. And we have we have those same issues with uh, with XAML, like in WPF. Sometimes the the designer gets out of sync with the code, and you just have to you get squiggles, and then you build it, and everybody's happy. Yeah, I think it, it's it, it's never a good feeling when that happens. But then you know you you look back at the clock, and you realize you've wasted an hour worrying about something that would have just ha- just would have fixed itself if you'd have hit build. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, somehow. The, uh, you know, shut it down and start it back up again thing always works. There's a lot of different incarnations of that. 
Just build all. Yeah, just turn it off and on. Any, that's it. Hit it on the top. That's the old one as well. <laughs> that's it, yeah. But, you know, I've definitely had a project where I just closed studio and then opened it again, and it was fine. <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it? Well, y- you know, we've talked to a few folks inside of studio about some of the stuff that goes on in there. You can understand how it gets tangled up sometimes. Yeah. You know, we're back to this. We're we're therapists to these computers now. <laughs> we're not actually, That's right. you know, surgeons or plumbers. We're therapists. We're psychologists. We, <laughs> we, we, uh, we have a conversation. We make some <laughs> suggestions. We observe the behavior. <laughs> we hope for outcomes. Prescribe some drugs. You know, some, here, do this. Take this. What happened? Did that work? Oh. Hey, Neil, what are you talking about when you mean, when you say F-sharp helps us avoid Boolean traps? Yeah, so, I mean, there's... Again, so I mean, I don't know if you if you guys have, have come across this this notion of a Boolean trap. There's a there's a fantastic article out there. I'll, I'll, I'll give you guys a link for it, which is all about you know you, we've all seen those API calls that you see all out there, which you know the final parameter is a Boolean. You know, so I think one of the examples that's given on the on the site that this is on is, is like a repaint, and it takes true or false, and you know it's like well, firstly, if I want to call repaint, surely I always want it to repaint, and then what does the true and false represent? And the you know the example goes on to show that the the true or false value has some just something completely incidental to to repainting, and it has absolutely nothing to do with it, and does the opposite of what you'd expect, and and all these kinds of right. things. And again, I think part of that comes down to, and it it's something that we could easily avoid, you know, in things like C sharp, you know, because we have things like enum types, you know, we we can we can take two values and we can give them better names and we can do things like that. But it doesn't seem to happen. You know, I come across code all the time where there's just lots of Boolean parameters for things. And, and, and the, again, it's back to that default thing of, well, the default is there's two states, so we're going to use a Boolean. <laughs> and then someone comes along and adds in the third state, so we make it nullable. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> You're in hell. <laughs> nullable Boolean. You know, and, <laughs> you know, I mean, because... Ouch. And, but you see... But you actually see, I mean, that's in WPF. I mean, that's in the checkbox in WPF. You know, that's the three-state checkbox. Is it's a nullable Boolean. And again, one of the nice things about F-sharp is that it's got this really, really lightweight syntax. So, you know, defining types is, you know, is just one line. Almost always, if you want to define something which, you know, takes two or three options, you're going to use something like a discriminated union type, which you define in one or two lines, and then you just use that everywhere and you get that nice warm feeling, you pass it around and you get all the type checking and things like that. And it's one of those ways where you could have that in C sharp, but it doesn't feel like it's the default behavior of most C sharp code that I've seen. And it and it's and it's pervasive throughout the whole framework, you know, all those places where you see Boolean for this and a Boolean for that. And it's like mm. your first Port of, port of call has to be MSDN to figure out what on earth this Boolean actually is representing. Whereas actually a well-named, right. you know, enum type is usually going to fix that. And, and then, of course, you know, if you go, you know, if you look at what a discriminated union is in F-sharp, um, you know, the implementation from a, a layman's perspective is it's, you have a, an abstract base class with two implementations. And it, you, you can match on those two implementations and say, is it one of these type or is it one of those types? And because it's a little bit more powerful than just an enum, you can actually start adding additional data to those things as well. So, you'd, you know, if you were to have something where it's, uh, you know, 
a, a boolean um, to say whether or not your character's dead in a game and a score, whereas you might have to have a struct or a class or something like that in, in C-sharp to capture both pieces of information to, to be able to pass around. In a discriminated union, you might have, you know, um, alive with a health and then dead with the final score and you're then able to add this additional data, which is really, really useful and powerful about discriminated unions. So it allows you to, to really easily refactor away from that. You've got two simple cases or three simple cases which have no data, and then you can start adding on those little extra bits. And so it's one of those things that's just it's kind of subtle about F-sharp, and I think part of it's about, again, back to those defaults. The default behavior is usually you can create a type it trivially in F-sharp, whereas it feels a, a little bit more effort to go add new file, you know, add in a few lines in C-sharp. I wonder if this is more about old programmer scars because creating your own types in the old days was evil and it's just not evil anymore. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we, you know, we kind of live in this really type rich world now, you know, you know, funnily enough, you know, like as a, as a bit of a sort of a nostalgia trip last year, I tried writing some C code and I'd, I'd literally forgotten about how little there is in there. You know, it's like, okay, I want to have a list of things. Oh, I'm going to have to write a list. You know, I'm going to have to actually go ahead and write a type that does that. And now, you know, moving forward to, to .NET, you know, it's like types everywhere. And yeah, yeah, you know, it's it's just not, you know, we don't blink at creating a new type for something. It's just... it. No. And the consequence to creating types isn't a big deal anymore. No. It's much easier to consume. It's much more portable. Like all of those problems that we used to be so careful about, you just, you just now have to be careful about it anymore. Well, I, you know, I, I keep having this thought, you know... It, you, you might get this as, as well. You know, whenever you make a call to a call center, you know, you're always put on hold for a period of time because the computers are going slow. And and I think to myself, you know, we're in the year 2014, you know, with, you know, eight core PCs on the desktop and things like that. And really, your computer's too slow to do this stuff. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm pretty sure my computer in, mid, in the mid-90s felt a lot faster than, than my, you know, my modern computer does these days sometimes. And, you know, maybe that's as a consequence of we just don't care about creating types as much. You know, maybe if we reined that back in, it'd be a <laughs> we'd have much more responsive PCs. But you know, we'd we'd all be losing our hair at a much faster rate as well as developers because uh, you know it's sort of the world that we've kind of grown into. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and I think it's it. I, I've I've had a lot of conversations recently about with new developers struggling with older developers, and I've always reminded them it's like those guys have scars. And you need to know what they are. Like, you, you know, go ask some questions and find out. You'll, you'll find where those biases are. But this idea, which I personally still struggle with, that we should be using our, our own structs, our own types much more often now, it's a, it's a challenging one for someone who's grown up in an older development world. Definitely, yeah. I mean, and you can definitely see that influence around there. And I think that, you know, like with anything, you, you've always got to take, you know, like with any rule, You've you've got to know when to bend it a little bit. So some of those rules are there for performance reasons. So if you're writing really high performance code, you might you might yeah. not want to be creating lots of instances of of heavyweight types all over the place. You might want to just have you may want to have a boolean there, but you probably you probably yep. want to get, make sure that that boolean's got a good name as well. <laughs> yes, and it's really a true false. It re- really, it really a true has false. to be true false. Yeah, no, I'm totally <laughs> with you. I think that's a show. Yeah, I think that is. That is a show. It's always great talking about F Sharp and especially people who know it very well and love to get all, all the C Sharp developers out there and even the VBNet developers hip to it. Yeah. And every time I talk about, uh, every time I talk to, to somebody about F Sharp, I want to just go do more. 
Well, I think that's the thing. Is it? It's is it's there. It's all IL, so it's it's not a scary thing to do. You know, you can still use all those libraries that you love. You can just uh, turn them on their head a little bit and and experience them from a new direction. Yeah, great. So, thank you very much for talking to us, Neil. Thank you, and uh, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Take care. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 